0: Voice Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
1: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
0: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news.
1: According to Truthout, a new report by the Prison Policy Institute called The Gender Divide Tracking Women's State Prison Growth indicates that Indiana is one of eight states in which the women's prison population is continuing to increase, though the men's prison population has decreased. Between 2009 and 2015, the rate of men's incarceration fell by 6%, whereas women's rate rose by 1%. The report notes, quote, Women have become the fastest-growing segment of the incarcerated population, but few people know what's happening in their own states." Fewer programs that offer alternatives to incarceration exist for women than they do for men. In Wyoming, for instance, men serving their first prison sentence can be sentenced to six months at a state-run boot camp, but for women, there's no such option, and they can face years in prison for the same conviction.
0: The United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture is calling for an investigation of U.S. police departments for what he called torture, excessive force with tasers. The call for an investigation comes after publication of a recent Reuters report that included footage of 22 incidents in four jails in Ohio, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. The Special Rapporteur, after seeing the footage, said the abuse from taser use in some U.S. jails violated the United Nations prohibition on cruel, inhuman, or degrading punishment. Attorney Ben Rabin observed, quote, I think it's good that we've got international oversight of this issue. I think excessive force in our jails and prisons is a significant issue that often goes overlooked, Unquote. Corrections departments have paid out millions of dollars to people who have been tortured with tasers, but in only a few cases did the officers involved ever undergo disciplinary action.
1: According to Alternet, Arizona State Representative, Athena Salmon, recently introduced House Bill 2222 in the state's House of Representatives to enable women prisoners to receive free menstrual pads and tampons. Currently, women in Arizona State prisons are permitted only 12 free menstrual pads a month and can have at most 24 pads at a time during their period. Any more than that, the inmates have to pay for themselves. The base pay for inmates who work in Arizona prisons is 15 cents an hour. In Arizona, a box of 16 always pads costs $3.20 women inmates would have to work about 21 hours to afford one box. A box of tampons cost $3.99, for which an inmate would have to work 26 to 27 hours. Last summer, the Federal Bureau of Prisons made it a policy to provide free menstrual products to women in federal prisons.
0: To start off the episode, We have a call from a prisoner in Florida who describes the current climate around Operation PUSH, one month since it began. As you may recall, updates from the sit-down strike that began in the Florida prisons on January 15th have been few and far between. Although the audio is a little challenging due to the nature of its source, this is a valuable set of insights from those still participating in the strike on the inside. We'll have a transcript of the statement included on our website. Hello, I'm calling from a correctional institution in
2: Florida where the struggle continues. We've really been having a difficult time trying to reach out to inform our local as well as national supporters support of on the situation concerning the month-long strike here in Florida prison. Just prior to the sit-down, I was relocated to another dormitory while one of my associates was placed in confinement and transferred to another institution. Florida Department of Correction undermined the strike's efforts from the very beginning by moving and relocating all the inmates that work in the food service department into one dormitory to prevent the inmates who are participating from threatening and committing violent acts against them. Since the date of the sit down, which commenced on January 15, 2018, there has been approximately 35 stabbings and four deaths that were motivated by correctional officers, which was strangely covered up in FDLE's investigation. While this much is true, it's still unclear if the, if the stabbings or death tolls are somehow related to the month-long strike. As I said, we were put on lockdown for 48 hours. The institution called the National guards, and they searched down each Dormitory for drugs, nights, and namely telephones. phones. Their major concern wasn't about someone getting high or stabbed. It was about impeding on the inmates' efforts to capture and or record unethical procedures as well as contact family and outside sources that would otherwise prevent FDL, Florida Department of Corrections, from covering up investigations that will lead to excessive force being used unnecessarily. While there is some sense of calmness in the midst of this storm here, we are encouraging our comrades and supporters to continue lending us your support. However, we must step our game up as we continue to drive the main issues home, which are to bring back Florida parole system to give individuals a meaningful opportunity to be rehabilitated as opposed to just locking the person up and throwing away the key. To institute a minuscule payment for inmates' work performance, Florida Department of Corrections has and is currently taking advantage of Florida inmates by taking her gain time away for illegitimate reasons, thereby causing the average inmate to spend 100% of his or her sentence Regardless of their sentence destruction allocated by the court. The other main issue that's affirmatively being addressed here in Florida is the issue of price cows. This is a touchy subject with the inmates here, simply because it's not our money uh, that's, that's actually being price gouged. The money belongs to our family, friends, and loved ones, and namely supporters. Uh, the flip side of this is how the Florida Department of Correction without agents, the Trinity and Access, are using their mates to commit the furtherness of fraud by conspiring to swindle and extort the very people who we depend on for canteen and health comforting items. These are white collar criminal acts are uh, being committed and perpetuated. These sort of people must be held accountable. We are currently mobilizing our strategy to join in the upcoming June 18th protests, which caused 3 million inmates to unify collectively, to send a powerful message to the government of the United States. A voice locked up is not a voice unheard. We can't say enough in regards to thanking our friends and supporters for the many sacrifices that are being made on behalf of all the inmates locked up within the Florida Department of Correction Corrections as, well, as the country and world around. We are encouraging you to help encourage others who are in our free society, to become active by simply writing to an inmate and express that you're not there to pass judgment and that you feel the changes in order. Uh, in closing, Operation Push' primary focus and goal is to build more solid working relationships with organizations as well as with religious leaders within the Florida Department of Corrections. Listen, the long and short of this interview is that we're not ever going to give up, and we're certainly. Not going to get in.
0: And now, we return to the history of black radicalism within the prison system. You can hear more from Dr. Nicole Siegel and Dr. Garrett Felber about this in last week's episode. Earlier, the prisoner reporting on Operation Push, the sit-down strike in Florida's prisons, mentions being transferred to a different area in order to prematurely stifle the strike's effectiveness. Felber helped situate this repression today by speaking about punitive transfers as a means of punishment in the 50s and 60s. These were made in order to separate prisoner activists from one another, but actually led to the spreading of the Nation of Islam within the prison system. They further explore the way repression and activism function in tandem, and more about the evolution of black radicalism inside prisons and its relationship to the civil rights movement, ending with how the Nation of Islam's struggles impact us today.
3: have Brown v. Board, 1954. Then you have Montgomery Bus Boycott Uh the next year. Then you have Little Rock, D7. Desegregation
4: Um, of public schools? Yeah.
3: You have this tremendous swell in especially the southern wing of the civil rights movement. Uh The Nation of Islam largely is, you know, doesn't see desegregation as a principal aim. And this goes back to the 40s that they don't see the value in integration. They critique it as resting on a framework of white supremacy that somehow black people are just trying to integrate into, you know, what Malcolm would call the burning house. We need our own space. And, and this is, I think one of the central misunderstandings of the nation of Islam is something that Malcolm spends the last five years of his life rhetorically trying to parse out for people is the difference between segregation and separation. So, so many people in that time and now talk about the nation of Islam being in favor of segregation. And he says over and over, no, we're as much for sort of integration as any other integrationist, but we want separation, which is voluntary and not forced upon us.
4: In terms of the nation of islam's relationship to civil rights struggles i know an important moment in the national understanding of both of these is this documentary the hate that hate produced
3: it's one of the major pivot points in the history of the nation of islam it's this five-part series on cbs newsbeat which is being run by a very young mike wallace at the time. And Mike Wallace is tipped off by this young journalist, Louis Lomax, who's black, about the rise of what they call black supremacy. And he's fascinated by it. And because Louis Lomax has access to NOI meetings, which are whites cannot go in, they bring a film crew and they record this mass rally at Uline Arena in Washington, DC, like 10,000 people. And it blows Mike Wallace's mind. And he's like, no white people know about this and you have 10,000 people showing up at arenas to hear Elijah Muhammad speak and they frame it and bill it as i think Malcolm in his autobiography refers to it as the as like the Orson Welles radio broadcast of War of the Worlds mass hysteria. Because for the first time, white people are being sort of made aware of this movement Mm -hmm. and they frame it as the rise of black supremacy. I mean, it's in the title, The Hate That Hate Produced. And the lesson that liberal whites are supposed to take from it is a sort of cautionary one. It's that white hate has now produced black hate. And if we don't take heed and sort of pursue the liberal avenues of the civil rights movement this is what will happen and this cautionary tale really frames now the nation of islam in this way as a as a hate group so there is a legacy i think to this day of understanding black nationalism as nothing but the sort of yeah the the janice face you know flip side of the kkk the white citizens councils that's how it's talked about after this documentary. I think the concept of reverse racism begins in this period. It's, it's the point at which now white people can understand. And I think it's compelling to mm. liberal whites to say, oh, well, this isn't something that's racially distinct to me. Black people are capable of Ugh. racial hate as well. It gives a set of tools and language to mm. something that people were grappling with. And it's deeply appealing.
4: So what was the effect of all this intense public scrutiny of the Nation of Islam on the Nation of Islam?
3: The positive side is that the Nation of Islam continues to grow at a rapid rate after 1959. The reverse of that is that the surveillance of the Nation of Islam grows tremendously after this. There's also a doctoral student who publishes the first full-length book, Black Muslims in America, which is where the moniker Black Muslims sticks. Prior to C.R. Eric Lincoln's book, which comes out in 1961. No one's referring to them as black Muslims. And then suddenly it's like 1959, we have a white liberal framework for understanding them. 1961, we have a phrase, black Muslims. And it drove Malcolm insane in the Nation of Islam because he keeps saying, we're Muslims. We are Muslims who are part of a large... I mean, for them, the phrase Black Muslims doesn't make sense because the whole theology of the Nation of Islam is that all people are Muslims, that all that all Black people's natural religion is Islam. If, if you're I in the see, nation, I you see. believe that all Black people were originally Muslims and you had your language and your history and your culture stripped away uh-huh. and that you just need to be reawoken to your That's true right, religion, I'm which right. is Islam. So yeah. this idea that they are somehow Black Muslims, it makes no sense, but it works perfectly for this sort of narrative of religious marginality. This is not orthodox Islam, it should not be understood that way. It's actually this very marginal, subversive oh, political man.
2: group.
4: So members of the Nation of Islam were getting intensely repressed in prisons because they were filing lawsuits about religious questions. They wanted east-facing cells and crayons with Arabic translations and no pork in their diets and so on. Now we're in the like early 1960s, and they are being intensely repressed, filing these lawsuits. And what happens as a result of their lawsuits? Do they win any of the things that they're asking for? And do they collaborate with other radical prisoners on the inside?
3: A lot of things happen in this moment. One of them is exactly what you point to, which is the relationship between repression and activism. That's something I refer to as the dialectics of discipline. And I think it's really helpful in thinking about the way in which these two things are always working in tandem. So backlash, you have these, like, people make an argument that something has, you know, the civil rights movement did this, and then there's this backlash, and we have mass incarceration. That Uh sort of thing. I think dialectics of discipline is a way to understand, on a really minute scale, how activism and right-wing repression is Uh happening. And it's not these massive sort of...
4: This pendular swing. No, it's a constant. It's like a new
3: epoch, but it's actually at the granular level, like, a prison official and a prisoner on a day-to-day basis, sort of hashing out Mm. these things. And and the way that it... To give you a a couple of concrete examples. Sure. So what really escalates surveillance is these lawsuits. So as soon as these lawsuits begin, the state starts surveilling the Nation of Islam in prisons. But they also start creating rules. So at Attica, for instance, they institute Rule 22. And Rule 22 says you cannot have legal materials in your cell that are not your own. And that's Mm. crafted specifically to target jailhouse lawyers. So the idea is that essentially writs are being filed. The Nation of Islam is the first group to sort of file mass writs, which are the same legal case over and over and over filed from each individual.
4: Because so many people want the same things. Yeah.
3: So what it does is it floods the courts and they're suddenly like, why am I getting hundreds and hundreds of cases coming out of this one prison and hmm. the way that these are filed is that someone like Martin Sostre, who's really leading these campaigns in the late 50s in New York prisons.
4: Martin Sostre is a prisoner? He, is he a jailhouse lawyer? Yes. Uh-huh. So he's okay. a jailhouse lawyer uh-huh. who
3: converted to Islam in the mid-50s. He writes these writs and writes John Doe on them, and then people fill in their name. And something like Rule 22 is a response to that, to say, how can we figure out a way to stop this from happening? So what you wind up happening then is, you know, someone like Sostre has tons of legal materials that mm-hmm. are not his own, and he gets put in solitary. So now we have people who are being thrown into solitary confinement and suddenly this escalates where now muslim prisoners Mm -hmm. are not only challenging religious rights but they're also challenging how their religious rights are leading Ah. them to greater discipline You have a legal challenge which then gets you into solitary. Now when you're in solitary, in this time in New York's prisons, you start losing good time. So good time would be a way to lessen your sentence.
4: You can earn a good day for every day that you're in without a disciplinary infraction against you. Yep, and you get out a day earlier.
3: So what winds up happening is, you know, the flip side of that is that you lose time if you commit these infractions. And you
4: get your good time taken away.
3: When you're in solitary, you lose a day because you're not in general population. So any day that you're not in general population, you lose a day of time. Any disciplinary infraction, you lose time. So like a disciplinary action might lose you 90 days of good time. And then you also lose it because you can't start reaccumulating it until you're back in general population. So
4: then what's the next step of the dialectic?
3: The next step of the dialectic is essentially that these cases that were once challenging things like access to the Qur'an They're now in court before the judge trying to say, I've lost this much good time. I've spent a year and a half in solitary confinement. And the judge keeps saying, well, this case is really just about whether or not you can access the translation of the Quran you want. And then they start changing their legal strategy because one of the judges says, you know what? If you really wanted to change these things, you shouldn't be suing the warden. The warden doesn't control these. These are policies by the commissioner. So sure Mm -hmm. enough, the next legal suit is to the commissioner. One of the ways that they realize that they can make these greater challenges Mm -hmm. is to actually say, look, we have constitutional rights. Which seems Hmm. obvious, maybe. From our perspective. Yeah. But prior to this period, it was sort of common sense to the judiciary that issues of prison discipline and administration were not within the bounds of the legal branch. Those were things for wardens and commissioners and...
4: The judiciary, judges, courts kept their hands out of prison practice.
3: Yeah. It's literally called the hands-off period.
4: But that period ends...
3: It ends in 1964 with Cooper v. Pate, which is a case filed by a Muslim prisoner in Illinois.
4: And it becomes a U.S. Supreme Court case?
0: Cooper yeah. v. Pate is a Cooper Supreme v. Court
3: case? Pate is one of the first major legislative victories of the prisoners' rights movement. And what it does is it opens up this whole other realm, which is that if prisoners do in fact have constitutional rights, there are all sorts of constitutional infringements that prisons Wow. Bring it back.
4: So Cooper v. Pate, this really foundational Supreme Court case, concludes from the Constitution that prisoners have constitutional rights. Yeah. And that was unprecedented, and that came about as a result of lawsuits by members of the Nation of Islam.
3: So after Cooper v. Pate, there's still demands that Muslim prisoners have. So one of them is access to religious literature, which goes back to the 50s, but now Muhammad Speaks is being published by the Nation of Islam. A newspaper? Yeah, it's their official newspaper. It Uh starts in the early 1960s. Okay. And it's a little bit uneven in terms of which states grant access. So it takes all the way till 1970 until... At the federal level, prisoners have access to Muhammad Speaks. And by that point, they're actually writing into Muhammad Speaks. They have columns, things like that. You know, Muhammad Speaks is a deeply political paper. So you have on the front page, you know, Elijah Muhammad giving some sort of statement. And then inside you have a lot of anti-colonial third world literature written by a lot of leftists in Chicago. So, I mean, one of the ways that sort of there is a push towards more political literature in prisons is coming through access to Muhammad Speaks. Now, the other major thing that happens in this period outside prisons is that other groups like the Young Lords and the Black Panthers and Republic of New Africa are also now in prisons. Not because of conversions, but because of outside political repression. Why are these groups in prisons? Because outside they're coming under deep surveillance and this is the era of right. hiding political prisoners.
4: COINTELPRO, for example, the exactly. counterintelligence program. They are very severe targets of state repression.
3: And also the raids that are happening at Black Panther headquarters, these are things that were crafted in the early 60s at the Nation of Islam. So mosques are being invaded, they're pulling material out Mm. of these raids, they're incarcerating people.
4: So police practices that are applied later to other political groups and black nationalist, black consciousness and civil rights groups are developed in order to target the Nation of Islam.
3: Yeah, but what it does in prisons to the sort of role of the Nation of Islam is that, again, they sort of in, in some ways become model prisoners. Because now you have groups that have much more radical critiques of capitalism, the Panthers and the Young Lords. I mean, these are revolutionary nationalist groups that are distinct in their politics from the nation's black nationalism. So a lot of the most radical prisoners would join those organizations rather than the Nation of Islam.
4: So why has the Nation of Islam once again become a relatively conservative group to affiliate with?
3: So I think this actually gets us kind of back to the dialectics of discipline. Uh By this point, the state is now more concerned with groups like the Panthers and other revolutionary groups. And the Nation of Islam is actually protecting its rights rather than advocating for them. In part, there's this kind of ebb and flow in terms of in the 1940s, maybe they were model prisoners because they weren't meeting such repression. By Uh the 1950s and 60s, when they do, it escalates to this point where they're taking over solitary confinement. In response to this sort of back and forth between prison officials and Muslim activists, Martin Sostre proposes that they take over solitary. So, what Oh, he... that's
4: the jailhouse lawyer you yeah. just mentioned.
3: So what he means by that, and this is concurrent with a movement in the civil rights era, which I'll talk about because I think it's an interesting connection.
4: What is that movement?
3: The jail no bail. So jail no bail is the strategy that emerges at the exact same moment in the South in Albany, Georgia. And it's in response to a mechanism of repression jails and the idea is that so many people are being arrested for civil disobedience that instead of posting bail and emptying their coffers trying to bail people out constantly they'll just fill them and once they're filled you can't jail people anymore right that's right The dialectics of discipline in the south is that chief pritchett down there starts mobilizing other jails county jails so when his fill up he starts shipping people out to other jails so that's what's ha- happening in albany georgia at the same time martin Sostre proposes look each time we have a religious infraction or something like contraband in our cell or whatever, we get thrown in solitary. So instead of consistently getting thrown in solitary, seen in as punishment, and then coming back, why don't we just purposefully get thrown in solitary? And the parallel I think is is pretty obvious in the sense that there's nothing more jail-like in a prison than solitary. I mean, that's what solitary is. It's jail within a prison. So the idea is that you take the sort of principal form of repression, which is solitary in a prison, and you make it a site of activism and you mm-hmm. say look this is actually where we want to be we want to fill solitary confinement with Muslim prisoners and the state has to go okay if solitary becomes filled with Muslim prisoners then we've got new problems one is we can't put anyone else in solitary the second is that we've created this hotbed of activism in solitary like we've isolated them from the rest of the population but now they're all in solitary
4: can they communicate with each other in solitary?
3: So at least at Attica, the way solitary is set up is sort of a galley of single oh, cells. Oh, so you
4: can yell and hear so each other. So you can
3: talk and, and mm-hmm. sort of cell to cell communicate mm-hmm. and things like that. It, it sort of deactivates the mechanism of control that the prison has in the same yeah. way that...
4: makes certainly makes it lose its terror.
3: And, and it makes the prison have to think of new forms. And I think the other parallel is that the same way that Pritchett starts to use different jails, mm-hmm. the prisons do this transferring thing that they've been doing... years prior to that Mm -hmm. but particularly in this situation they say okay we need to break this up and we'll send certain prisoners here and certain ones there and and that Mm -hmm. is another way to diffuse it Uh so then you take three or four of the principal organizers at attica and you send them to clinton and they spread islam there
4: after the takeover of solitary, which is very radical, the Nation of Islam once again becomes less radical because they are more interested in conserving what they have is the true meaning of conservative, right? They have mm-hmm. one certain rights, and they're working to conserve them. It's a really interesting circle that you describe. It hits home for me the way that politics are really contextual. It isn't that the nation of Islam has always been a conservative force. It really is what is the relationship between any given group and its broader context mm-hmm. that determines the political valence uh, of their activism. And and
3: you could argue that the the nation's politics are incredibly consistent from World War II through Attica. They're fighting for many of the same rights. Their analysis of the US nation state is absolutely consistent throughout that period. But what's contextual is the place that they play in a in a given space yeah. and time.
4: So what do you think are the legacies of this history of the nation of Islam in US prisons from the forties to the early seventies for our time?
3: So I think one is something that we touched on earlier, which is the understanding of black nationalism as reverse racism. Mm-hmm. I think that that continues with us to this day. We constantly see Black Lives Matter and right-wing accused dis- of racism, yeah, mm-hmm. a, as as sort of a hate group, and mm-hmm. and even we just, we just saw the designation by the FBI of Black Lives Matter as a sort of hate group, which just harkens back to sort of COINTELPRO Pro and and prior understanding the Nation of Islam in those similar ah. terms. The other is I think a continuity really, which is that these efforts at addressing carcerality and punishment are not new. We often fall into the trap of tracing the rise of mass incarceration starting with the numbers.
4: Which brings our attention long past the period in which the policies that created mass criminalization were passed, right? Mm -hmm. If we only look at the numbers, we're starting at the very best in the 1970s, sometimes even not until the 80s. Yeah,
3: and our entire discussion today has been prior to what many would trace as the beginning of mass incarceration.
4: That's right. So how do
3: we think about not only the punitive things that are in place that lead us to that point, but also the centrality of challenging carcerality, whether it be policing or prisons or Mm -hmm. other forms, that has always existed in Mm -hmm. Black activism, that we now sort of are seen as like the struggle of our time. And it's really been this thread.
4: There's a real constancy in prisoner resistance.
3: Yeah. And understanding the prison as representative of something larger than itself, as an embodiment of many of the things that people would critique about the U.S. nation-state. The prison is a sort of distillation of that.
4: Can you say more about what you mean by that?
3: Just to go back to the conscientious objectors in World War II, most of them did not have a critique of prisons before they arrived. They had a critique of the nation-state. They had a critique of imperialism, of white supremacy in many cases.
4: Of militarism.
3: Exactly. All of those things. And I think who coming in contact with the prison, you see in their writings, I mean, there's this really interesting organization that comes about in 1946 in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Prison Discussion Group, and they meet for a year, and I can't find anything else on them, but they are talking about prison abolition. They use the term abolishing prisons, and they have this questionnaire that they send to all the members who are now interested in this group, and they say, uh-huh. should we be talking about abolishing prisons? And many of them, I think, I think this falls off. I think they go on to be active in the civil rights movement and back in radical pacifist spaces, Mm -hmm. but their encounter with incarceration led them to apply the critique that they have of these other forms and ways in which the U.S. nation state enacts violence against its citizens and the world to understand the prison in that context. And I think we shouldn't shy away from the fact that not only are prisons not trans-historical, as Angela Davis kind of begs us to (laughs) think about, that these are not things that have no origin point and thus no end, but that the organizing against them also has this rich history that we can draw upon and, and feel comforted by.
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.